0: Welcome to Side Alpha Leadership, a podcast where leaders can share their experiences and discuss what leadership means to them. I'm your host, David Polikoff. Hi, and welcome to this month's episode of Side Alpha Leadership. I'm your host, David Polikoff, and I'm pleased to have a, a good friend of mine and a fellow instructor, Tony Tricarico. Um, who I've known for probably about seven, eight years now, maybe a little bit more. Um, So, Tony, welcome to the show, and uh, tell everybody about yourself a little bit.
1: Hi, Dave. Thanks for inviting me. I appreciate that. Um, My name is Tony Ficarico, as Dave said. I was a career firefighter in the New York City Fire Department for 29 years and or so. And I was a volunteer firefighter prior to that on Long Island. So I got a total active service to this day, about 42 years. Um, I worked in the busiest companies in New York City. I was a uh, special operations camp when I retired. I was an instructor at the uh, FDNY Academy. I was an instructor at New York City OEM. And I was an instructor at uh, Suffolk County Fire Academy. Um, in addition to being an instructor at the Fire Academy in New York, I was also uh, for specific disciplines in the special operations like trench high angle collapse, about six different disciplines. Um, I guess that's pretty much it, Dave.
0: And, uh, you and I know each other through our, a mutual friend, RJ. We both uh, teach for capital fire training and, uh, done a whole bunch of, uh, shows together, uh, from all up and down the East coast basically. So, uh, it's been a pleasure uh, to know you and you've passed on a ton of stuff to me. Um, so today, uh, with every podcast, we talk about leadership, but I want to focus more in on training because um, I've re- I've sat in a lot of your classes where whether we're doing uh, self-rescue, rope rescue, uh, elevators, and things like that, and I really like your style of teaching on top of the stories that you have uh, from when you were in the companies and and how you approached uh, training your guys. Um, so for a lot of the newer officers that are out there that that have just gotten promoted or even some that have some time on what is your – how is your success and your secret to getting buy-in to uh, training with the guys? I know you're one of those kind of guys that every day you're at work, you're training, uh, whereas, you know, most guys would just assume come to the firehouse and sit on the couch. How did you get your guys off the couch, and how did you get them buy-in into the training?
1: Well, um, it's it's a self-motivated type of uh, operation. You know, I, I always liked training. Going back to when I was a fireman in 19 trucks, And I was a fireman in 42 engine. Well, when I walked through the door in 42 engine, I had come out from being a volunteer fireman. And uh, I thought I knew what I was getting into. And uh, after that first night tour, I had like six structural fires, 30-something runs. I I went in and out, up and down, all around. And uh, when I drove home the next morning, I was like, what did I get into? I couldn't believe what I had been through. So basically, um, realizing that I didn't know anything, these guys taught me day by day. When I was a 19 truck, I was uh, fairly new in the company. I was sitting in the house while I was doing a roof rope, uh, repacking the roof rope and retying it. It was something we did every week. And one of the senior guys walked in, and we were three new guys in there. And he says, I wouldn't go off the roof with any one of you guys. And I looked at him. I said, you wouldn't go off the roof with me? He says, no, I wouldn't go off the roof with any of you guys. You don't know what you're doing. And he walked out. And I knew that day that I was going to make sure nobody ever – ever turned around and said they wouldn't do something with me because of lack of trust or lack of lack of thinking that I had a lack of knowledge. So that was the self-motivation part of my, uh, of why I trained.
0: And, and I know that that paid dividends as you moved forward in your career, um, When, you know, with the stories that I've heard, you have a quote and and, and, uh, you and I both got to write for Billy Goldfeder's last book. And uh, I actually read all the most of the stories and I I definitely read your story because you have a quote that you put in there that you you, you always say it about training, but you admit that you didn't make it up even though you wish you did. And it was about uh, training until you get it. How? Tell tell everybody what your quote is because I live by this now.
1: Well, um, professionals train. So they can't get it. Uh, so they can't get it wrong. Everybody else trains. Amateurs train until they get it right. When we train, it's not about getting it right. It's about it becoming a rote motion. Um, roof bulb rescues. Some of the more complicated rescues, whether it's confined space, firefighter removal, um, high angle trench. All of those things require a high skill level. And you can't just kind of know what you're doing. You need to know what you're doing. There's no ifs ands or buts about it. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna refer to that Billy Golfer story I wrote. Um, I had a call from a fireman of mine. Now, I had been retired several years already, maybe 10 years already. And this guy calls me up and he says to me, he says, I want to tell you a story, Cap. And he started to tell me about how he was at this um, fire where I believe... I don't remember the exact numbers. I believe it was something about 100 cars on fire inside of a parking garage. Maybe 75 cars on fire. Either way, that's a large volume of smoke inside a parking garage. And um, these guys were advancing down there, and guys were bailing out. There were maydays all over the place. That thick, heavy black smoke from any kind of a car fire. Only it's now confined in a space and just pumping out. This thing is pumping this bunch of cars on fire. This things banging all over the place. Pie exploding. You know, it's 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 got a good pucker factor. It's a pretty intense situation. So he calls me up and he says, as I was get leaving, because I was starting to run out of air, he says, um, he hears a, a, a pass alarm going off. So him and his partner start heading in that direction. And sure enough, they find the, the actual the officer of their company, they find him uh, bewildered, kind of staggering around, uh, semi-conscious. So they go and they put air on the guy and they package him up and they get him out of their two suite. It was, it was one, two, three. And he said to me, he says, Cap. He says, all that training we did time and time and time again. He says, yeah, it got a little monotonous, but we did it. He says, we did it over and over and over. When it came time to actually do a firefighter removal, he says, I didn't even have to think about it. I just got to my knees, I did what I had to do. I gave him air. I packaged him. I got him up there. I gave him a main day. I pulled him out, and that was the end of that. Just like that. So that, that to me, was probably one of the biggest compliments I've ever gotten is from uh, somebody turning around and saying, all that training you did to me, as much as you may have been a pain in my ass, it really, really paid off when the time came to use it. That's uh, to me. That's a big compliment. Yeah, they used to call me the drill Nazi once in a while, but I kind of wore it as a badge.
0: Yeah, and you you constantly say you know professionals train till they can't get it wrong, and, and amateurs train you know till they get it right. And the other thing that that uh, <clears throat> that you say that I constantly uh, put out to uh, my students when I'm teaching is that you know. We have to train every day because our skills are perishable. You know, if, if, if you leave food out on the counter for too long, it goes bad. You can't use it anymore. Well, it's the same thing with our skills. If you don't practice uh, your skills, you're going to lose uh, when it comes time to actually have to do it, you know, when, when, when the shit is on to be able to, uh, you know, recall motor memory, you know, muscle memory without having to think about what you're doing. So, so, uh, I, I instill that into the people that I teach that, you know, that our our skills are perishable and we have to train every day. Uh, one of the other things that I've, I've taken is I try to tell my guys to focus more on the things that we do 90% of the time, because that's what we're doing all the time. Um, there are some departments that just get kind of pulled into the weeds of, of these technical calls that we may run once a career, like, a, you know, a transit train overturn with people trapped or, you know, people hanging off high rises, although in New York, you get that a little bit more than most people would uh, in the rest of the country. But if you have those bread and butter skills to muscle memory, it's like tying knots, you shouldn't have to think about how to tie a clove hitch or a bowline or anything like that, it should be muscle memory. So, so speak to a little bit about that. And, 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 how you and transition into the story where when you guys finally got your life-saving rope uh, and, and what the department told you you could and couldn't do with it and what you decided to do with it.
1: Oh, <laughs> the bailout rope. Yeah. Um, all right. We'll, we'll start with the perishable skills. Um, perishable skills are the things that you don't do much. You know, those are the things you're doing 10% of the time, like trench rescue, high angle rescue, uh, confined space rescue, you got to drill on those things a lot because they are perishable skills. Your bread and butter skills you should have down because you're running them all the time. But it doesn't mean you can't practice them because there's always uh, another way of doing things. I've had guys come up when we were doing drills and say, hey, Cap or Lieutenant, hey, what if we do it this way, boss? Uh, well, it won't work because X, Y, Z. He says, but I think X, y, uh, A, B, C. So you know what? Do it. Go ahead and do it and let's see what happens. Because the only way to really let this guy go is to let him try something new. And if he fails, he fails. If it comes out, hey, maybe we've got a new way of doing something. But it's about it's about exercising. Uh, it's about drilling on the bread and butter things over and over again. Uh, I'm sorry. Let me back up. It's not drilling on the bread and butter things over and over again because these should be skills that you're good at because you do it all the time. Like your, um, your CO alarms. We all do multiple CO alarms. So, you kind of got that down now, how to go into there, how to, uh, how to gain entry, how to uh, make sure you're wearing your SCBA, what you're doing wh- as far as readings. Um, let's say your, um, your automatic alarms. God knows we all do so many automatic alarms. It's basic, but you have to be prepared. You know, you go to these alarms, you automatic alarms, you're like, oh, well, you know, you don't even put your gear on, you throw it in the rig, and next thing you know, you pull up and this smoke pumping out of this building. You have to be prepared for these things when they happen every time. You can't just, just take it for granted that it's not going to happen. So, basically, what you do all the time, you should be better at than what you do 10% of the time, which is where you need to drill, as far as the uh, bailout rope goes. So, um, we go back to when the New York City Fire Department starts to give us back our bailout ropes. We had bailout ropes once they took it away, and with the, death of, uh, with the uh, Black Sunday incident and the death of the four members there, well... Three of the members were because of bailout ropes. One was uh, Slofani in Brooklyn. It wasn't because of a bailout rope. He got caught in the basement, but that's a whole other story. Anyhow, so we finally get bailout ropes back, and we go to the Rock, the New York City Fire Academy, or Randall Island. We call it the Rock. We go to the Rock, and we get trained. So we go through the classroom, we go through the packing, we go through the tying, we go through how to do bailouts, how to do remote bailouts. You know, they went through the whole gamut of things. And we do maybe about six or eight bailouts at the Fire Academy. So I says to the boss I says, hey, boss, uh, when are you guys going to come around and train us? Well, he tells me he's got this fire engine that's set up with a wall that comes down, so they go firehouse to firehouse, and the wall goes up hydraulically, and then you can bail out off of the top of that. It's not far. It's only about 10, 15 feet, but it's a good uh, opportunity to train. And they said they're going to be around twice, three times a month. Well, I waited a month, and nobody showed up. I called up. They said they'll get to me. They never got to me, so we started doing bailouts with our, our existing ropes. And so now when we start to do bailouts, every single tour, Without exception, every single tour, both the day tour and the night tour, we would go out into the yard. We had a, uh, a nice high um, um, platform for bailing out and comp- compensation for high, high, high angle. Um, so we'd go up there and we'd to every day. I went and I obtained, let's say, a landing mat from the um, operations command and had safeties on it. And we'd bail out over and over and over again. Well... Lo the whole one day we're gonna do bailouts and this one fireman of mine says, "Hey Cat, we'll just uh, I said set up for the for the bailouts and he says, "Oh, we'll skip the uh, the mat." I says, "No, Billy, put the mat out." He says, "No, no, Cat, we'll put the, bailout, the uh, we'll skip that. We'll just use the safety." I said, "Billy, put the mat out." And one more time he so starts to challenge me. I said, "Billy, what part of this song did you get? Put the mat out." End of story. You go to put the they put the mat out. We can put the safety on. Billy's the first guy to the out. He misses his anchor point. Boom! I catch him on the safety. Now he's really humble. He's hanging there. Everybody's laughing at him. So I start swinging him back and forth on a rope. Now he's swinging back and forth. And I tell the guys, go ahead, pelt him with rocks. So they're throwing rocks at him, and they're beating him up a little bit. And I'm standing up there saying, we don't need the mat cap. We don't need the map. I said, Billy, you do this because you know how much paperwork will send to somebody getting hurt on duty with something like this? I said, I don't want to do that, and I don't want you getting hurt secondarily. Realistically, you know what I mean, guys, right? So we go back to the fire academy. Now, by the time we went back to the fire academy, my guys probably had uh, – Hours and hours, probably 150, 175 slides on every one of their ropes. We just kept going and going and going because you need to make this a rope motion. So we go back to the fire academy, and we have to hand in our ropes. And the trainers at the fire academy, they take all the ropes, and as they're going through it, next thing I know, there's a lieutenant coming out and say, Captain, can you come into the office? The chief wants to speak to you. So I said, yeah, no problem. I walk beside the office, and uh, it's like a grand jury. And it's a lieutenant for captain, to chief, double firemen, and they're all looking at me And they says, you used your rope. I said, yes, I did. And they kind of looked strange because they, I guess they expected me to deny it. They said, well, we told you not to use your rope. I said, you also told me you would come around and train us. So now he starts to give me some off-the-cuff story. And I said, hold on a minute, pal. I said, I'm with the special operations unit. I said, these guys need to know what they're doing. It needs to be a rope motion. Six slides in one year does not make for a qualified person to bail out on a roll. If fact, one of my guys' lives is in danger. I want them to be proficient, and I want them to be able to come home with me at the end of the tour. You didn't hold up to your end of the bargain, and, and I needed to train my guys. So they just kind of went with it and said, okay, we'll, we'll get back to you on that cap. And I went out and did my training, and at the end of the day, they turned around and said, how about if we give you training ropes that you can use at home, and firehouse, he means, that you can use in your fire station? And you don't use your regular ropes. I said, that's a good alternative, Chief. I said, I have no problem with that. I said, but what you told me was not true, and my guys need to be proficient. So that goes back to the saying, which, like you said, I didn't create that saying either. Professionals train until they can't get it wrong, amateurs train until they get it right. We don't need to get it right once, we need to get it right every single time, and that's what a professional does. You do it till you can't get it wrong.
0: Yeah, absolutely, because that one that one time when you have to do it when it's life on the line, you don't have the time to think about it. And, and the guys were proficient at it. Um, I think it's funny because you know here's New York City that has what you know, 20,000 employees or 11,000, about, 12, about 12, 000 12, 000 employees, and you're still around, running into around. yeah, you're still running into the same brick walls that. Uh, you know, Springville, Alabama would have, you know, with with the same bureaucracy and the, oh, you shouldn't have done that and you shouldn't have done that. And, and yet you have your bosses that aren't living up to uh, what, they, uh, what they promised you. So as a company officer, as a leader, Absolutely. you needed to make sure that your guys were proficient. So like you said, they go home at the end of the shift. It's your responsibility as the officer, as their leader, to make sure that they go home the way they came into work. And, uh, you know, that's every bit as important. And everybody that's listening to that needs to understand that, you know, don't be afraid to uh, to go against the grain if it's the safety of your people uh, at the end of the day. So, you know, hats off well, to you. And I learned a lot from you when you were telling those stories because I've taken a lot of that information.
1: Thanks, Dave. You know, going back to what you said about guys needing to know what they could do. There was actually an incident in New York City, probably not well publicized, but there was actually an incident in New York City where a guy was trapped and he was in the window and he was calling for a ladder and he, he almost got burnt bad, he got out the ladder, but he had a balance system on it and the guy said, Why don't you use the balance system? He says, I wasn't sure how it really worked. Now that's that's What kind of excuse is that? You weren't really sure how it worked. You're walking around with this thing on your hip every day, and you weren't really sure how it worked, or he wasn't confident in how he was supposed to do it. Why bother? Why bother? If you're standing around with a tool and you don't know how to use it, you're you're useless. You might as well be a civilian on the sidelines. Right. Yeah, I, and as far as fucking the system and going up against like doing what I did, even though I knew I wasn't supposed to do it. I had a very solid reason for doing that. And I was also prepared to take the consequences. You know, you can't do something like that and say, oh, you're not going to do nothing to me. You got to be prepared to take the consequences. And I was prepared to take the consequences because the difference was those consequences. I would have taken because it made a difference of whether one of my men lived or died. And I couldn't stand that. So I would rather take a little bit of a lump let one of my men die. And that's what my, that's what my solution was to the the problem.
0: And that's, that's accountability. That's taking accountability for your actions. And, and again, when they, when they confronted you, you you said, yeah, absolutely. I did that. And, you know, maybe I wasn't supposed to, but that's unacceptable, you know, for my guys not to be trained.
1: You're right, David. I kind of knew I had them at that point because they said they were going to come around to train me and they didn't. And I needed my men to be trained. That was, that was, the ultimate. That was the my utmost responsibility. And and again, you say uh, the consequences and accountability, it's also responsibility. I'm taking responsibility for myself. I'm taking responsibility for my actions. I'm not going to blame anybody for what I did. I did what I did because it was necessary to keep my men alive and keep them well-trained. So you have to be, like, like I said, when you do something like that, you have to be willing to pay the consequences. And I was willing. I mean, what are they going to do? Take a couple of days' pay, a couple of days' vacation, whatever? I, I'll make that up somewhere down the road. But it's it's more important to me to make sure my men were trained than a couple couple
0: days vacation and not only that your guys seeing that you are standing up for them and that that gives you a lot of uh, respect and credibility um i want to fast forward a little bit we we were talking about the story i remember i think uh, it was you me rj maybe sam and uh i can't remember who was with us when we were out uh towards wilmington delaware teaching a class and we were rotating the students through and i and i think we were doing roof ops and uh I think you asked one of the guys offhandedly, I think he had a, a system uh, around his uh, his waist on his running pants, and, and you asked the guy, I said, hey, uh, you know how to use that? You ever used that before? And the answer you got from that guy changed the way that we did things the rest of the day. The guy said, no, I've never used it. I don't I don't know how to use it. I remember that. And you looked at him yeah, and you go, are, you, are you kidding me? You have this built-in, and, he, and, and you started asking all the guys, and you just got the deer in the headlights. So we changed that entire station from roof ops to bailouts, and you taught every single one of those guys that came to that class— how to use their system. So that's, that's taking responsibility. You know, we couldn't leave there in good conscience knowing that those guys had equipment that they didn't know how to use.
1: Absolutely. I had a training, training session once because I've worked with several different training companies and I was somewhere in Pennsylvania and uh, a guy wanted to show me his new rescue squad. And cause I was, I was the captain of the squad and uh, special operations was my game. So, he took me there, and everything was brand spanking new. So I took it out, took out one tool, and I says, uh, I says this looks like it hasn't been used. He says, no, we haven't even used that yet. I says, is the gas in it? He said, no. I couldn't believe it. I put it off to the side. I said, this tool's no good. And I went to his rig after about five tools that I said were no good because he doesn't know how to use it. He didn't train on it, or they're not filled with fuel or whatever the case. He was done with me. He didn't want to hear my thing no more. I says, I appreciate what you're showing me here. I says, but... Just because you have the name Rescue or just because you have the name Squad, if you don't know what you're doing, then you're useless. You might as well be civilians. You could be anybody on scene because everybody can stand around with their hands in their pockets. It's the people who step up and take charge, the people who step up and do the job. Those are the people that you want involved in, the, in whatever the operation may be.
0: And that's that. That's a, a fantastic point. Knowing the equipment that you have on your rig and how to use it. And if you're not prepared to either use it because it's not ready to be used, or you don't know how to use it, you're no better than the people that are calling nine one one. And the running joke in the fire service is who do the people from nine one one call when they need when they have help? Help. Uh, of course, in New York, you will say special operations. But uh, you know, at, at the end of the day, if if you don't know how to use the tools that are on your rig you basically, to quote a buddy of mine, you're just a dude dressed in a fancy outfit that's pretty expensive with a cool yeah, hat.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I call it a bumblebee outfit. You just look like a bumblebee standing in the street parading around. Right. And you know what you were saying about training and having showing up on scene to know what you're doing, in New York City Fire Department, when I was rebuilding the squad, Squad 252, when I was rebuilding that after 9-11, um, I had to go through a lot of people to build my company. You know, I went through, to, to just to get the first 15 guys, I probably went through 45 people, because not everybody is capable of being a special ops person, and not everybody has the aptitude to be that. Listen, you don't need to be a rocket scientist to do any of these things, but you need to be good at it. Some guys are really good engine, men, but you give them a saw and they really don't know what they're doing. So you know what? Stay an engine man. You're really good at it. And people need good engineers to go drop the engine guy to fire don't go out. But with the special operations a- attitude, I needed a certain aptitude to make sure that these people had the capabilities to do what's necessary. And one of the things I told them, which really should be the mantra of every fire company in the nation, the things that I told them was you can't say you can't. You're a special operations guy. When things are going sideways, when it's hitting the fan and the chief needs help and his eyes are looking really big and he turns around and says, Tony, this is what's happening. Make it right. I tell you no problem, chief. I said, you two guys do this, you two guys, do that. you and me are going to do this. Go. And we just scramble. And when you go out there, you're, the chief can count on you. The chief knows when he, needs, he has a problem or when something's going sideways and bad, he can turn to you and say, Dave, I need this done. And he knows that you're going to get that done. That's, that's very important. And when you do that, the chief turns to rely on you. You can't say you can't. And that should be for every company.
0: Yeah, it's uh, last month. I, I had the pleasure of uh, of interviewing a uh, Navy SEAL and operator. He did thirty years on the, in the teams, and uh, listening to the stories that these guys have, you know, that's that's who they call for special operations out there. And and you know, if you want to call it the tip of the spear or whatever uh, cliche, uh, you know, uh, statement you you want to make about special operations. At the end of the day, you're absolutely right. You can't say, well, I can't do that because if you can't do that, who can? You know who do we rely on to get this done? And and uh, you know it's funny. You know when when you talk about squads in New York City and rescue squads in New York City, two different things. And I made the mistake one day of talking to uh, one of the guys in uh, at uh, Rescue Squad One, and I called it Squad One, and that was like a no no. You know, I I was just Uh, talking to the guys.
1: they even just calling it rescue squad, those guys don't like that. They have the rescue and we're the squads. Right. And they like they like to turn around to us and tell us we're the JV, no, which really we're not. We have some fantastic talent in the squads, and uh, a lot of guys in the squad end up, they start the squad, they learn their, learn their craft and move up to the rescue, which when when I was interviewing guys to bring them into the squad, I always told them, I got to get five years out of you. I'm not going to train you and lose you to a rescue in two years. I need you to just give me a five-year commitment, and they would. And there's many, many guys from the squad 252 that are now in the rescue throughout the city. All five of them.
0: Yeah, a- absolutely, and we work. We work with a couple of those guys. So, uh, but um, yeah, so so for the people that are that are listening to this, give a brief explanation of what the difference between squad and a rescue squad, or a rescue in, in New York, so the guys kind of have the idea. So they don't make the same mistake that I made by... It was strictly by accident. It was just a slip of the lip when I called it the squad as I get opposed it. to I get it. the rescue. Okay, so, uh, or duh rescue. And the squads. <laughs> I'm sorry, what was that name? I, I said the the in, 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 in the Bronx, they call it the rescue, right? Well, yeah, because it's the, Bronx. the I mean, Bronx. Nobody ever says
1: duh Bronx. It's the Bronx, <laughs> right? Right. So um, anyhow, so the difference between the rescue and the squad, they really... Is no difference in the training. We all train to the same levels. Um, the rescues have divers. The squads do not. The squads have tenders. Um, but otherwise, all of the all of the skills as far as the disciplines go, all of the disciplines, um, confined base, high angle, trench operations, collapse operations, we all have the same level of training. So, um, for instance, in my company, I carried four trenches. To- that's well, maybe a carry. So either way, two or four trench panels is what a squad will carry. Because we show up to a trench, we have to be <coughs> excuse me, Dave. When we pull up to a trench, we have to be able to initiate a rescue. So what we would do is we'd be able to get a couple of panels in and shoot some struts and be able to get get a barrel around the guy and just keep this guy alive until the rescue shows up and they probably have another eight panels with them four to eight pounds with them. So now we can actually start to expand our trench operation and rescue this guy. Confined space, same thing. We start to set up mechanical advantages to get a guy in and get a guy out. You never put a guy in without giving it. Here's a quick sidebar on that. Never put a guy in without getting a guy out of a confined space rescue. Well, I pull up to a manhole. I'm working squad 18 in Manhattan, and we got this manhole of steaming and there's two people standing there, and there's these people fighting, and one of the guys fell into the manhole. Now, there's hot steam coming out of these manholes. You've ever seen them where the smoke is coming out of the ground? They usually right. put these big orange uh, funnels around it. Well, I look down, there, and this guy's, this guy's a lobster. He's dead. He already fell 15, 18 feet, and he's laying in a, a, a puddle of steam. I put my hand over the hole, and I pull it away immediately. It's way too hot for anything. So I get on the air and I, I tell them what I got. Um, I tell them I'm going to steam shut down. I tell them that I have a DOA. And that, that the world lights up. Everybody shows up, including the police, ESU. Now, ESU is the first person that shows up, besides so us, on this. Because it was originally uh, just um, an EMS run, a fight in the street. So we set up all mechanical advantages to get a guy in, a guy out. Well, ESU comes running. Up. And they get a guy, and they put this guy in a rope, and he's going to go in, but they don't have a uh, way to bring him out. I says, dude, you shouldn't be going in there without getting out. I says, and it's really hot. You shouldn't get in that hole. And he puts his hand up, like, talk to the hand. They know what I'm doing. Well, this guy sits in a hole and rolls out of there and about a half an hour. Later, I see him cutting his pants open, and he had steam burns all over his legs. Anyhow. So we go back to the disciplines. We're all changing the same disciplines. The rescue has a lot more tools. And now, for instance, a collapse operation, we have in the Bronx, Rescue 3 has a collapse rate. I think actually there's one in Brooklyn now, 12 years, so things have changed. Um, they have collapse units, which is a track and trailer, with all kinds of tools and cut tables and panels and, and whatever. You 4x4s, 2x4s, 2x8s, 2x6s, everything you need to put this thing together, nailers, cutters, everything. Uh, so sort the of collapse unit response. So that's the difference between the rescue and the squad. The rescue is a much bigger toolbox than the squad. Um, one of the things I like about the squad is we do all five disciplines of the service. We do hazmat work. We do engine work. We do truck work. We do rescue work. and We do EMS. So we do all five disciplines of what the fire service does, which is kind of a bonus, you know, because one day you're on a line pushing down a hallway, knocking down some fire. The next day you're sent up to the top floor to start pulling ceilings for a cocklaw fire, and the next day, you're uh, you're doing a trench or a collapse, or maybe there's a firefighter down. You got to go grab somebody. So it's a lot, really, a lot of versatility in, in the squad.
0: And you got your own first do area as well, correct? Absolutely, yeah.
1: You have first do, second do, third do engine.
0: So, the um, so let's talk a little bit about your time in special ops, and, and and how did you go about? I mean, the discipline to being able to be an operator in, in special operations, even in New York or anywhere. Um, yeah, obviously, you know, is is a lot of intensive training. You gotta kind of be a jack of all trades, but you also have to be a master of all those trades that you're uh, working at. So, as the leader, when you were the captain in two fifty two, how did you motivate your guys to keep them on that 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 top level of, of performance? You know, at least with your shift. I know you said like right after nine eleven, you really had to go through 40, 45 guys just to get the fifteen that you wanted. So, how did you um, get that? uh shift and then how did you keep them in that prime condition until the day you retired?
1: Well initially when we were rebuilding, um that's why I went through so many people because people some guys they couldn't talk their way into the company because I could tell that they didn't have the talent. Some guys are able to talk their way into the company but they actually didn't have the capabilities that they thought they had. So we were drilling, especially the first several months that I was in the company, we were drilling um I tell the guys after the roll call, okay, clean the house up. We're going to get out of here at 10 o'clock. We go out at 10 o'clock and we find some place to drill, and we drill on all different disciplines, and even the basics, uh, stretching hose lines and, and using, using partner saws, whether we're cutting roofs or we're cutting uh, overhead, cutting horizontally overhead, seeing that you can hold the saw and make a good cut like that, um, using mechanical advantages, lifting dumpsters, moving dumpsters, moving rocks, doing everything we can to just exercise the disciplines that we learned, and not everybody was always capable. So we would leave at 10. And finally, somebody would, like, tap me on the shoulder. Usually my chauffeur, Tommy Rogers, ace of a guy, a really good dude. He was uh, he was a great guy to have as my chauffeur. Um, and Tommy Rogers would tap me on the shoulder and say, hey, Cap, you going to feed us today? I'm like, oh, you guys want to eat, too? <laughs> so we'd go to, like, a pizzeria or a diner or something. we sit around. we take an hour, eat. Then we'd go back and drill again until about 4 o'clock. And then I'd tell the guys, the rest of the day is yours. And, uh... That was it. That's the way the days went for months and months after 9-11 because it was, a, it was a rebuilding process. And I had to make sure all my men were capable. I had to make sure everybody had the training. And the only way to be that good at it is to repeat it over and over again. And like I said, when a guy comes into the company, number one is humility. There's a lot of great clients, a lot, just because in special operations doesn't make you the best, right? You may end up being the best, but best when you walk through the door. So be humble be humble because there's a lot of good guys out there and there's a lot of good guys that don't want to come to the company. I This one guy, uh, Mike Perrone from 175, I would have loved to have had him go there, but he was a senior man in 175. He had had 25 years, 22 years already and he wasn't leaving, but he was one of those guys, just a great finder all around, but um, couldn't get him into the company. <laughs>
0: The, um, and I know that, uh, you know, once you got your team together, you guys, you know, you, you were, you were drilling all the time. And I know, uh, that your, your, your chauffeur, especially during football season, you had made mention that, uh, you know, as long as you were done the drills by, you know, the football game, whether it be Monday night football or a Sunday game or whatever, Yeah. You know, but, but that goes to show the leadership of guys, if you give me X, Y, and Z, the rest of the day is yours and you never tacked on any surprises and you protect your guys from the uh, from the bureaucracy to make sure that they were um, the best uh, at, at their position, yeah. at least that way. You know, on your days off, when when uh, your guys were working and you weren't there, you know that they were doing the job, even if they had an officer there that may not be as dynamic as you, you know that they, that they would be uh, keeping the uh, the pride and, and the good name of that particular company uh, where it's supposed to be.
1: Well, that guy in particular, this thing is Wayne. Wayne was another one of my ex. All my folks were top-notch. You know, if if I didn't have a top-notch chauffeur, it wouldn't work. And I, I actually, if we back up to when I was a Lieutenant 157 truck, my chauffeur, Dennis Heaney, I hope, rest in peace, another victim of 9-11, Dennis Heaney um, was retiring, and he... He uh, was getting out, and uh, there was another guy in line for the seat, what we call the chauffeur's the position. Another guy in line for the seat, but he he just didn't take direction right. He was too much of a cowboy. He listen, I don't mind Blanche being cowboys and doing certain things, but when I give an order, I expect it to be followed. And he would place the rig where he thought it should be instead of where I put it, where I wanted to put it, which would ended up being the proper way, proper place to put it for this particular incident. Anyways, long and short of it is, I had this other guy who drove. He, he could handle this rig like it was a Fiat going down Ocean Parkway, flying down there to a, a second alarm. And he, was, he had this thing dancing on a dime. So I ended up picking him over the first guy, and the first guy was all mad at me. He was upset with me, but I need a guy that I can trust. I need a guy who's able to follow orders. I need a guy who, when I tell him, I say, uh, "Dave, we're going to do X, Y, and Z. To make sure the men are ready, online for this. No problem, Captain Meagle, Lieutenant." He goes downstairs and makes sure it's happening. Wayne was one of those kind of guys. He was an ace of a chauffeur. He could make that rig dance, that squad dance, going on any road that we wanted. Um, he, he was just a excellent guy, excellent guy. I was proud to have him as my chauffeur and my senior man.
0: Did you ever get a chance to actually empower your guys to actually lead drills that you may have been part of, but you didn't actually lead it? You just said, like, hey, you know, uh, I know you're riding, uh, you know, the back step, but uh, today I need you to lead this particular drill and let them, you know, kind of shine their own light? Did you ever uh, get a chance to do that?
1: Absolutely. Guys ran a lot of drills. Especially when, now, after, after we had the, uh, the initial several months of, uh, of heavy duty training, we backed it off where we would train every tour, both day tour and night tour, but it wouldn't be hours and hours and hours. Listen, sometimes a drill would only be 20 minutes. You know, like for instance, we were doing a fast pack and we'd sit, we'd sit on the apparatus floor, and we'd take the fast pack and close your eyes, and what you do is you put an SCBA in your pack, you put a guy in an SCBA in front of you, and with your eyes closed and your gloves on, you take your SCBA, you take your buddy pack out, you give him that, you disconnect him, put it on there, you disconnect his face piece, and you hook it up to the fast pack. You, know, you don't have to get a complicated drill, but you have to be able to do this with your eyes closed, and depending on the type of breathing apparatus you have, you have to be able to know how to disconnect it. You don't have to start a squeeze and push on the, uh, the you know, trade out there. You need to know these things. and You need, again, it has to be a rope motion. So, sitting on the other side, just switching air in and out, just moving around. Okay, you hook up to this guy, you hook up to that guy, you hook up to this guy. And it's simple. It doesn't have to be complicated. But anyway, yes, we did have a lot of guys running their own drills, especially when we got a new guy in the house.
0: Did uh, How did you set your guys up for promotion? Anybody promote out of your station? We've had
1: lots of guys promote out of, us. yeah, lots of guys promote. And, uh, well... I didn't really set them up. I encouraged them to study. Some guys didn't want to study. Uh, some guys do study. And uh, <coughs> excuse me, uh, I, I actually have had um, quite a few compliments come along from my lieutenants and my firemen, who have become lieutenants, captains, and chiefs uh, on the way that I would run my company. Um, as a matter of fact, Captain Q One called me one day and was telling me that he would he kind of would emulate my style of leadership, because he liked it. He says it was very unambiguous. He said Everybody knew what you wanted, and that's the way things were done. And that's all it really came down to. You know, I, I specifically told the guys, listen, this is the way, when I first got there, I had a meeting with the guys, everybody in the kitchen, this is the way we're going to run things. So I, I would take the guys out to the bar sometimes for, the work, for a couple of shifts and go out and we just have a couple of drinks and sit around and talk. This is the way I want things. to run, okay? I'm not beyond, above reproach. If I say something or do something, and you don't think it's right, you can ask me why. You can question me, and I'll explain you why. I mean, not on the flag ground, but I was also on the flag ground to a point where I remember this one job we were having we were digging guys out. <clears throat> and we were digging guys out, and I said, this is not going to do it. And we started to, start to do this, and I see it's not working. I said, guys, I is it's not working. And I said, I need an alternative to information. And one of the guys said, what if we do this? Let's do it. Make it happen. And we did it, and it worked. You can't be so, so, um, uh, so so arrogant to think that you know everything, and just because you have a plan, you can't push it if you can see it's not working. You should be humble enough to see. I had a plan; it's not working. We need a plan B. Anybody got an idea? Anybody? It doesn't make a difference who they are. I need a better idea because my plan's not working, and somebody's life is in, this, in hanging in a, by a thread Here, I need somebody's idea. So. That's how I encourage guys to take leadership. When we would go to a multiple alarm, and sometimes you go up on a roof, you have a couple of young guys and they're not quite sure where to cut that roof yet because it's not as it's not as common as it used to be. Right, I said to my guys, you get up on a roof and you see things aren't going away, you're supposed to take charge. Say, Okay, brother, I need you to do this. You this brother, I need to do that and we're gonna work together and you've got a pull, you've got to cut, you gotta whatever, and the guys work together like this. So that encourages
0: leadership that's uh it's it's funny that you say that you know you can't be so arrogant just because you have the the white shirt or, or the powder blue shirt, you're the officer, you're the Lieutenant, you're the captain. You have to know everything. It's it, you've got a lot of smart guys that are coming into the fire service now that, uh, you know, you you got a guy that might be an electrical engineer. You're going to tell that guy how electricity works and, and, you know, how, how things, you know, so as, as an officer, as a leader, you have to be open to the fact that, that, you know, there are people out there that are smart. I love having kitchen table conversations just to hear what these newer you know, these rookies, these probies that are coming in, you know, saying, Hey, where'd you come from? What'd you do before this? And, and you kind of find out some good information from these guys, or you throw an, a, a problem out or just say like, Hey, if, if this happened, what would you do? And then just hear other people's perspective on how they would solve the issue. And it could be a hundred percent different than what you're doing, but I had an old cap that it told me, and this sticks with me to this day. Different is not wrong. It's just different. You know, people come up with different ideas yep. on, on how to, to do things. And, um, uh, it might be a better plan than what you are thinking and you go with right. it. Especially you know for your plan B heard. and plan C.
1: Yep, and that goes back to what I said earlier, where the guy said, Hey Cap, what if we did it this way? And I said, But it won't work because of XYZ. He says, But I think this and that. Okay, try it. You know what? We're in a controlled environment. If you want to try it, now's the time to do it. If it doesn't work, this is the place to find out. Right? And by the way, going back to when when I was a young fireman, and that guy walked into the room and told me I wouldn't go off a roof with I wouldn't go off a roof with you. By the time I got promoted at nineteen truck, I was far from a senior man. I was I was becoming a more senior man. I had about fourteen years on the job, but I was not the senior man by any means. And people would come to me for information. People would ask me how to do drills, and I would actually run drills in nineteen truck, which was actually frowned upon when I first got there. They really weren't much of a drilling company. Occasionally on Saturdays, but they did, it wasn't an everyday event. Um, so basically. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, Scott I was going because I wasn't a senior man and people would come to me. So the matter is training. I'm, I'm sorry. I was going to my leadership thing and I I'm, I'm lost my train
0: of thought day. <laughs> that's That happens to all of us nowadays. So oh, please, I want to shift gears a little bit and I want to talk about one of the uh, one of the training uh, sessions that we run when we go out with Capital Fire and when we're doing our rapid intervention stuff. And this was an incident that uh, one of your friends was killed in line of duty. It was the, the Bodega Fire that uh, that uh, they had to collapse. So talk a little bit about yeah. that and then let us talk about the drill and what we do to these students and, uh, you know, how we stress them and then tell them and, and tell the audience why we do what we do.
1: Okay. So the fire you talk about is a 99 store where uh, O'Reilly Carpluck died. Um, I happen to know Carpluck since he's probably about 16 years old when I was a volunteer in Brooklyn. He was a volunteer and I used to perish and we used to race together and we see each other parades. Anyway, he was a great guy. Super great dude. So he yes, actually assigned a 42 engine, my first house I ever worked in, and uh, he was working overtime the time, a 75 engine, and they were advancing uh, in a 99-cent store, and um, uh, I believe the floor collapsed, through the air conditioning unit came down and assisted in the floor collapsed. They got pitched into a basement that was just filled with bottles and cans and plastic bottles and plastic jugs and all empty, and they were thrown into there. Uh, turns out there was like, nine guys on Listen, I'm giving these numbers. I'm not exactly sure of the numbers on this. I'm sorry, but I'm not. I just don't want to be held to it. Um, so they got the initial, um, let's say, eight guys out of there relatively quickly. Then they took another guy out, and then Howie and O'Reilly, a top and O'Reilly, were stuck underneath. Now, O'Reilly was actually below carpluck. And um, one of the guys was that he was telling me that originally when Karl Pluck um, was down there unconscious, he, he had a condition on the diaphragm, I believe. He All he could think about was the guy below him. you got to get the guy below him. The O'Reilly was a and He was very concerned about him. And uh, ended up taking both of them out or how he was actually um, not semi-conscious, well, mostly unconscious when they pulled him out. And we wheeled him out to the, to the ambulance. And uh, O'Reilly was already passed when they pulled him out. But, uh, you know, it's just this is the way it is. You know, you got friends all over the job, and sometimes these are people you grew up with. So anyhow, so what we end up doing with the uh, Capital Fire is we create and replicate situations like that. What I try and create when we do this for firefighter survival is to replicate something that has been done. Uh, ho- sometimes it's an uh, incidents that I have been to. I've been to several of these types of incidents, not that specific type, but where firemen have died. Um, we try to replicate that and put a stress factor in there by applying a lot of heat, a lot of noise, and replicating what happened there and why these firemen had died. But we have many, many situations like that throughout the history of the New York City Fire Department where guys have died because of just something going wrong. Sometimes we'll build these props, we'll build an entire prop inside of a spare uh, a vacant house and we'll build an entire prop in there just to replicate something that happened, or maybe a couple of uh, props to replicate multiple stations of what happened. And we'll bring you through the different uh, firefighter deaths, line of duty deaths that we've experienced and try to replicate that so you can feel the tension that's involved in trying to get through some of these things.
0: Yeah, I know uh, when you told us the story and, and when we built these props out, I know the first time we did it, we did it out in West Virginia, and I think we had those torpedo heaters. And I want to say we got it to about 150 degrees, you know, inside this, <laughs> this basement. And uh, uh, we added the uh, the uh, all the soap, liquid soap and the detergents and everything, and we just lathered up the... Uh, the um, the mannequin. So you couldn't get a good handle on them. We, we would, um, set a ramp up. So the guys would have to go down the floor and that would be soaked up as well. So they couldn't climb back up. So they had to use multiple different, uh, ways to get in and out, whether it be over rope or whatnot. And then all the stuff that we threw on top of them, all the furniture, uh, um, pallets, everything that we could think of that, that were in these vacant houses when we were running these, and, and we, and then uh, we would we would crank the heat up, and uh, I think the last one that we did in Delaware, I ended up uh, was playing, I think I was playing death metal at like eleven at, uh, at, a, at a, a volume of eleven, and just in the guys' ears, and they're screaming at each other, and you could see them stressed out, and you could see them yelling and getting mad with each other because they can't communicate, and on top of being slipping and falling all over the place, and um, and then afterwards, we bring them out and and, and we explain to them, you know, why we did what we did, and we tell them, if you can operate in this condition, um, with all the stresses that we're throwing at you, this, you should be able to. to spin this up. If this was to happen in the middle of the night, keep that in the back of your mind in your Rolodex that, uh, you know, Hey, we've done this uh, type of uh, situation before. And these are some of the things that worked for us. So these real world situations that, that, uh, we know of, or that, that our instructors have been through have really helped us to hone in on, on a lot of the, uh, the drills that, that we have. And I know that that one was, was, uh, close to you because he was a good friend of yours. It
1: was I was a good friend, and that's the whole idea of the training is high stress training high stress trainings brings you to a level that can, like like i said we're sitting on the on the floor breathing air doing a rip pack that, that's no stress rolling in there except if you run out of air and just pull your face piece off it's a clean environment when you do high stress training like what we do with these these uh, replications of of line-of-duty deaths, you know that people's lives are hanging or you feel like people's lives are hanging in the the air. I remember this one chief from West Virginia saying he felt the stress in there because he felt like he was going after a real person after hearing the stories about this and showing showing the uh, the slides on our PowerPoint. That's how he felt about it. He he felt it was a high-stress situation, and that's what we want to do. We train you... The whole idea is you train to a high level because if I train you to a level 5 and you end up going to a level 7 incident... You're not going to be prepared for it. If I train you to a level 15 and you go to a level 10, you got that. That's the way I look at it. Is you have to train to the highest level possible because when you show up to something, you can't say I can't do that.
0: Yeah, and I know when we do our, especially when we do our rapid intervention. Uh, training for, for Capital Fire. We try to make it as, I don't want to say unrealistic because people get themselves in, in, in terrible situations, especially firefighters, but we try to make it, like you said, make it at a 20 um, where it, you'll probably never see the type of scenario that we're going to put this mannequin in that you have to get them out. But, the, but in reality, when you actually encounter something like this um, and it's not a 20, like you said, it's a 10 or a 5, you got this. You're in, you're out um right. it's it's that whole train until you can't get it wrong especially when it comes to uh you know being the rapid intervention company
1: especially then rapid intervention you know like i've said many times dave we've seen when we've done this when we've done this before um rapid intervention is it's one of those things where like uh, with a rapid intervention team it's the most boring job on the fire ground until you need you're needed Once the Rapid Intervention team is needed, not only is it not boring, but you're the most important team on the fire ground because you're going after one of the brothers or sisters. And that's what really counts. Right? That's when your skills have to be played out. And that's when you, whether you're a truck company, engine company, however your department works, you need to have your skills at top levels because it's one of your brothers in there or sisters in there.
0: Yeah, we try to uh, you know even when we're teaching this on the road, we, we try to make these guys dynamic. As uh, you know, hey, just because you're the rapid intervention company, you shouldn't be you know planted in the front yard just standing there. You know, you know, hoping you know being miserable because you're not inside. But you know, what do the ladders look like? Uh, what do the conditions look like? What does side Charlie look like? Somebody might need to get around to the rear. You might see something. What maybe there's a wall that's buckling that we haven't caught? Maybe some wires are burned down. So we try to train these guys to be dynamic when you're the rapid intervention company, because if you end up just standing in the front yard, you're missing stuff, you're complacent. And we all know complacency kills. We want to make sure that you got your head on a swivel and you're taking a look what's going on. You are the second eyes for that incident commander or for the safety officer. So you can throw something out there. Maybe you need to redeploy your, your, your rapid intervention company to a different side of the building because that's where everybody's working. It doesn't always have to be on side a, so, uh, that's, you know, some of the things that we try to instill. Um, so we're coming down to the witching hour. We're going to wrap this up a little bit, but uh, I want to get some final thoughts on uh, on some advice that you can give some of these these newer officers, these lieutenants that are that are, are, are these uh, you know drivers and firefighters that are going to be coming up through the ranks. And and uh, how can they as junior officers? And, and we're not running the fires like we used to, so we don't have all of this. Um, um, this on-the-job training, these fires, we don't have all this salt under our belts anymore. It's its kind of, a, you know, hit or miss with, with today. Um, what advice would you give these new people when they come into the stations um, to be able to operate as an officer and how do they build credibility and how do they add to their leadership, uh, you know, how they build leadership?
1: Okay. Um, I think the first thing I would say is is come in quiet. When you walk into a new firehouse, um, whether you're a lieutenant or captain, don't walk in looking to change things. Walk in, walk in looking to learn things. This company was there way before you got there, and it's going to be there way after you leave. So when you walk in there, you find out why are things done this way. And a perfect example is the New York City Fire Department. You're supposed to have 60 lengths of inch-three-quarter line on your engine. So I'm new there. and new at 252, and I see them only carrying four lead lengths of, of uh, two inch-three-quarter line. Now, if anybody's going to go down, for it, it's going to be me. I'm the captain. So I called my chauffeur, the first chauffeur I got there, Richie Sweeney, another dynamite dude. Um, I said, Richie, why do you got four makes of hose there, not six? I know what the book says. And I need to know why. And he's like, he's almost making excuses for Listen, I says, listen, I don't, I, just tell me why. I said, if the chief comes up and says, how come? I need an answer. He said, oh, we've been doing this for years, Cap. He says, we um, only have four lead lengths because it's short stretches in here. It's also, we have two-story, three-story buildings, frames. He says, it's all short stretches. We don't have any person. We have a long stretch, so we only have four lead lengths. I says, how long have you been doing? She says, longer than I've been here. I says, and it works? She says, yeah, this is enough for me. And I'm done. But I don't know what the book says, but just because the book says it doesn't always mean it has to be. This works for this particular company, and if a chief comes in on a situation, I have a reasonable answer for him. And I'm willing to take the shot for it. Again, this is the way they did it. I'm not about to change that. You let things like that go. You can't always be 100% by the book. That's, got, that's coming in quiet. letting them know. L- learn what the company is. Don't come in there looking to change everything right out of the gate. Um, be humble. Listen, there's a lot of good firemen on the job. And even if you're a really good fireman, be humble. Let the guys see what you're made of by being humble and show them how your work ethic is and show them what your training ethic is. Let the guys, you've got to earn that respect from the people when you're walking there. You can't walk in, listen, the, the rankings get respect. You're always going to get some kind of respect because of your lieutenant's boss. If you're a, a knucklehead, they're going to treat you like a knucklehead. So you come in easy and you let them know this is how it goes. Another quick story. I was, uh, I came to work and my, uh, my, uh, recliner in my office was gone. And that's what I would do. You know, come one o'clock in the morning, I sit in the recliner, watch a little TV before I was start, decided to hit the racket for having a slow night. So, um, I come downstairs at dinner and I says, well, I recliner look missing. And one of the guys says to me, well... Uh, we broke a recliner down here, so we took yours. I said, So why do you take my recliner? And we had this little tit for tat. And I said, Okay. I said, How much is the meal? I put my money on the table. I said, Just remember, you mess with the bull, you're going to get the horn. So when I left, my chauffeur, Wayne, turns around and says, What are you crazy? He says, This guy would do anything for us, and you're going to take his recliner? He said, Do you really want to fight with this guy over this? Look at what he does for us, number one. Number two, look at what he could do to us if we play with it. Right. They came upstairs with the recliner in their hands and their tail between their legs and sorry, captain, here's your recliner back. And that was that. Right. Because I had the senior man down. There. The younger men were not thinking of the long term effect of that. The senior man turned around and says, wait a second. Think about who you're messing with and why you're doing this to him. The guy would bend over backwards for anything to give you anything. And you're going to do this to him. Give him back his client. We'll find another recliner someplace else. Right. That's how you earn respect to the men. They know that you're going to stand up for them. They know that you're going to take care of them. And even even if I had a chief uh, admonish one of my men when I wasn't working, I would go to that chief on a later tour and I'd speak with him about it. And I, I'd say, is this a Tony and, Tony and, uh, Tony and Dave story? Uh, conversation is this going to be a a capture or and chief Holocaust uh, uh, conversation. And usually it would be a Tony and Dave, and we can talk like men and resolve the issue. And the truth of the matter is, when one of my guys does something wrong, I'm responsible for it. You don't beat on my men in the street. You come and you beat on me. I'm the guy that takes the brunt of it. I'll beat on my man back at the firehouse, but you don't do anything to anybody but me. I'm the guy in charge. And that's the same for my lieutenants. And lastly, what I'd like to say is you can learn from the jerks, too. When you see an officer who's a a knucklehead, who does stupid things, who makes bad decisions, learn from them. Don't make the same mistakes he's making. Not everybody's a good officer. Some people are just really good test takers, right? Learn from the bad guys as much as you learn from the good guys. And I have to say that that guy who, when I was a 19 truck and he told me he wouldn't go off the roof with me, years later, as I was either a lieutenant or a captain by the time, we had a company reunion and I'm sitting in the corner with all of those same old timers. And I know that they respected me. I know that they, just the way they talked to me and the way they, they uh, admired my career so far. These guys were retired now. And I said, I am what I am today because of you guys. You guys taught me the ropes. I remember going down a hallway and I was scared and I didn't think I could go any further. And you talked me through that and it gave me more experience. I remember being on a roof and it was the first roof I cut. And you guys were the guys that helped me by my tail of my turnout coat, which, by the way, I, I was thinking to myself, this guy's coming by the tail of my turnout coat. I don't know even know who he is. I got fire rolling over my head. I'm cutting the roof. I said, who is this guy? What am I doing up here? But these guys taught me. And I wanted to let them know that it's those guys, the senior men, when I was a kid, that taught me the trade that made me the successful person I was in my career. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think that that's sage advice, especially, you know, when you're talking about the senior man, just because that guy's not wearing the lieutenant bars or the captain's bars, that guy's a fountain of knowledge, especially once you feel him out and you realize that, you know, this guy is is going to be your advocate, like with the recliner, you know, he's the one that's going to set the tone on the floor when you're doing your admin work up in your office, he's the one that's keeping the guys in line, making sure the firehouse is clean and the trash is out, so when you go to get relieved uh, after your night tour or or you finish your day tour, that other lieutenant or captain's coming in He's not stepping into a mess. He's stepping into a clean firehouse because your guys took care of that. So that's that's fantastic advice when, when you, you know, being being the lieutenant or the captain, be humble, learn from your senior man. And also, you know, I've said it before, you can learn a lot from a bad officer. And, and, and as long as you recognize that yeah. it's a bad officer... Those are the traits that you don't want to have, and you always keep those in the back of your mind. The good, you'll have a lot of good officers, and you'll pick things up from them. But it's the bad officers that you really want to remember. So when you start to do, when you become that officer, you can ask yourself, "Am I like that guy? Am I am I bad like that guy? Um, if I'm not, then then I'm on the right path." So that's fantastic advice, Tony. And and uh, again, I appreciate you coming on here and and um, uh, and. and Again, one one more just, thing I want to say sure, sure,
1: cool. is that um, I, I remember with, uh, working with guys in 19 truckers. We were studying for promotion and we would see somebody do something and we'd laugh about it. And I says, if I ever become an officer and I do that, I should give me a quick, swift kick between the legs. Because <laughs> you need to be you need to be reminded that don't be a jerk. Right. You're an officer. Don't be a jerk. And uh, last, lastly, but I know you want to cut me off here. Lastly, I want to say, do your work, do the office work. Don't leave all of your work for the next guy coming in. When I was a lieutenant, I did all my paperwork, and then i do enough paperwork for the guy coming in that he didn't have to do anything till the next morning. You know, that's appreciated. And that's how come when, when, it was, when I was looking for a spot, I started getting phone calls. I, I narrowed it down to three companies I was looking for. I started getting phone calls. Hey, listen, I got it open. You want to come over here? Oh, I'm waiting for this guy. I'm waiting for that guy. And when I finally did get the spot I was looking for, a week later... Another spot I was looking for opened up, and the guy called me to take me in there because they know that you're doing the right thing in the fire ground. They know you're doing the right thing in the office. They know you're doing the right thing as a trainer. The chiefs see it. The captains see it. The men see it. They want you to be an officer as opposed to saying, oh, we don't want that guy there right? That's what you want. You want to be desired into the company and show them what you're made
0: of. Absolutely. And, and yeah, you don't want to leave that mess, you know, for, for the next shift coming on. You know, I, I've, I've, I've forgotten things. Uh, I think the last thing, the, one of the last things I forgot to do is I left the, 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 battalion cart, three quarters of, of a tank of fuel totally slipped my mind to go, go out and put fuel <laughs> in it. And, uh, and I didn't even think about it. And, and, uh, I get a, uh, you know, you get an end of shift report from every each battalion chief and, and, uh, he put on there that, uh, he fixed the, he fixed the fuel gauge. It seemed to be broken in the morning, but it's fixed now. And that's all he said. <laughs> and I knew right away what I did. I called up, I said, man, I feel like a total asshole. I apologize. I don't normally do that. And, and, uh, and that'll never happen again, but you know, lesson learned. So, uh, yeah, you don't want to leave your messes. You the
1: whole thing, The way that whole thing was handled was perfect, right? You knew you made a mistake, but you don't make mistakes like that. You made a mistake, which everybody makes mistakes. I don't care who you are, but you made a mistake. You called up, apologized for it. Uh, You humbled yourself. You says, "I I don't know what you meant. I'm sorry. It'll never happen again." And I know it would never happen again. This guy knows it would never happen again. And the way he handled it was not saying, "Oh, by the way, the chief before me left the tank on half." No, he said he fixed the fuel gauge. You knew what he meant. He knew what you meant, and it was solved the issue. You know what I mean? You both handle that like professionals.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And there was a little bit of humor in there because that's what we do in the fire service. We bust oh. balls. So uh, that's what we do. Yeah,
1: so, yeah. So. You gotta have humor. You gotta enjoy it. You're gonna see some nasty stuff in your lifetime. Enjoy it. Enjoy it while you can. You gotta be able to just digest these things and move forward.
0: Absolutely. And that's that's why when you're, when you're a good officer and you got good guys around you, they're gonna be your... The post that you lean up against when you're having a rough time, whether it be personal or, or on the job, because we see some pretty screwy things and our home life can yep. be pretty screwy as well, you know, based on what we do on the job. So that, that's it, right. It all comes good into guys. Play.
1: Good. Good guys make a good house. And, and when you're in a firehouse, that in your mind should be the best firehouse in the job. Every time, no matter where you are. When I was a 42 engine, it was the best engine company. When I was a 19 truck, it was the best ladder company. When I was a 157 truck, it was the best tower ladder. And when I went to the special operations committee, the guys turned around me and said, what are you doing with special operations? You don't like those guys. I said, you know what I said to them? I said, now I don't like you. And we all laughed about it and joked about it. And then a couple of those guys came to my, to my
0: company. Absolutely. <laughs> that's what I said. No matter where I am, that's the best place to be at the time, whether it was I worked in all five battalions in our county and whatever station I was at, that was the best station to be at. And uh, now I'm in the that's first, right. I'm assigned to the 1st Battalion on C-Shift. And, hey, that's the best uh, battalion, the best shift, hands down, uh, up against anybody else in the county. And that's pride. And that, that's telling you guys, that you know, I appreciate right. the work that you do and always be prideful and, and, uh, and, and stand up for your, for your battalion, for your shift.
1: That's right. Pride in the job, pride in your company, and pride in yourself. So,
0: again, Tony, thank you very much for coming on here. And, and, uh, hey,
1: thanks, Dave. It was ab- fun.
0: Absolutely. I enjoy talking to you. I love hearing your stories, and I'll never get tired of hearing them. And I'm looking forward to when we can get back on the <laughs> road and do some teaching again.
1: Yeah, really. Okay, Dave. Thanks a lot, man. You have a good day. All
0: right. You too. Thanks a lot. See you.
1: Take care. Bye.